Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and the generous gifts of our listeners to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already partner with Fighting for the Faith, visit our website at fightingforthefaith.com and click on one of our friendly yellow buttons. One says join our crew, the other says donate. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. If you want to specify the amount, you click on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you for your support. We cannot do what we are doing here without it. And now, on to the program. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, March 19th, 2014. Yet today is the last day of our Christianity 101 series with Ernie Lassman. And it may be controversial. In fact, um, if you've never heard a Lutheran challenge to the um, very popular uh, teaching of the rapture, well, then this should be interesting. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseboro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. And we take the time to slow down, stop, open up our Bibles, and take a look at what God's Word says in context to see if what uh, popular pastors, preachers, authors, conference speakers, leaders, vision casters, things like that, people like that, if what they're saying actually is what God's Word says when we actually take a look at it in context. Now, eschatology can be one of those um, issues, one of those areas where um, there is a lot of heat and very little light. And in fact, I don't like to cover eschatology on this program very much for that reason. There are a lot of people who think that they've got it figured out to the point where they will anathematize, literally claim that somebody is teaching uh, something that will send somebody to hell if they disagree with them on their eschatology. And I consider that to be a problem. Why? Well, one of the reasons I consider that to be a problem is because, for instance, when we take a look at something like the Nicene Creed, the Nicene Creed, which was hammered out really early, was finalized in the fourth century, but its uh, you know its predecessors, uh, you can look at. Uh, in fact, you might want to look this up: the Regula Fide, the uh, uh, the rule of faith uh, in the early church. Uh, you, uh, I think we're looking at what. Uh, Irenaeus, uh, Tertullian, guys like this talked about it. And um, when you take a look at the rule of faith uh, you know, and then how it gets finalized into the Nicene Creed, what the church confessed about the last time, what it considered to be vital information, vital confession regarding the uh, the last times, was that Christ was going to return in glory to judge both the living and the dead, mm-hmm, whose kingdom will have no end. Uh, it's pretty much the summary of it. Uh, in the uh, Regula Fide, in the early Christian church, we have no mention of the rapture. We have no mention of 
of the seven years of tribulation or, you know, or pre-trib, post-trib, mid-trib, any of that kind of stuff actually being uh, early confessions of faith uh, that, you know, that was vital for Christians to believe. In fact, what you're going to hear in today's episode of Fighting for the Faith is basically an old school Catholic, small c, and that's not Roman Catholic. Small c Catholic means prior to uh, the u- usurpation of the Bishop of Rome. Uh, a, this is a small c Catholic eschatology that you're going to hear in this episode, and it doesn't mirror at all. In fact, uh, Ernie Lastman will straight up challenge uh, many of the popular eschatological uh, teachings of today's evangelicalism and do so on biblical grounds. If you've never heard a challenge like this, this might like come out of left field for you. But at the same time, I know that there's a lot of folks out there who've had questions about the uh, teaching regarding the rapture and have basically quietly said, yeah, the thing doesn't make sense to me, and I can't make the biblical proof texts that are used to prove the doctrine of the rapture actually square with how the, the teaching is, is presented. If you've been looking, if you've kind of suspected that there's something wrong with the doctrine regarding the rapture but haven't been able to, like, quite put your finger on it, this episode will be um, hopefully helpful. If, on the other hand, you're absolutely firmly convinced the rapture is going to happen and um, and you absolutely are convinced that it's pre-trib and that if, uh, if you believe, if you don't believe that, then you're a heretic, then this <laughs> program will be, uh, well, it'll be like chewing on gravel is probably the best way to put it. That being said, here's my challenge to y'all. Don't take Ernie Lastman's word for it. Nope, don't trust him. Listen with an open Bible, not an open mind. And if you disagree with him, uh, find the biblical basis for why you disagree with him, because what he's going to basically put out here is an old school Catholic, small c, a view of eschatology and challenge some of the popular teaching regarding the rapture. So this should be an interesting program, could be controversial. And uh, for those of you who make Um, a particular eschatological system, a mandatory belief regarding Christian orthodoxy, I would say this. Um, If you're saying that I I can't be a Christian unless I believe in a pre-trib rapture or a mid-trib rapture or a post-trib rapture or something like that, um, and you say that's one of the tests for orthodoxy, my challenge to you would be this. If that's really a test of orthodoxy, why has the church historically not made it a test for orthodoxy? Maybe it's not actually a true test for orthodoxy, and it's time for us to take a hard look at what the scriptures teach and don't teach regarding the eschaton and and not make eschatology the basis for whether or not we're going to consider somebody to be a, a Christian brother or sister or not. So without any further ado, here is Pastor Ernie Lastman of Messiah Lutheran Church, Seattle, Washington, in his final lecture in our Christianity 101 series, talking about the millennium and the rapture. Here we go. Let's talk about the millennium and the rapture. And again, I'm, I'm trusting because I can only do so much tonight. I'm a trusting and assuming that you read all of this or at least some of this. Okay, um, let's take the first one, the end times in Revelation. And then we'll look at the other chart too. And I'll use these two charts, these two handouts, to kind of work through this. Uh, 
first of all, let me just set this up. What we believe in our church, which is the teaching of the whole Roman Catholic Church and the entire Orthodox Church in the East, and also uh, most of Protestants, is just what I taught you last week, remember? Remember we talked about certain things about the end of the world, right? Jesus is going to come back, visibly. He's going to raise the dead. There's going to be a judgment day. And a new heaven and a new earth where believers will go, and then eternal damnation for unbelievers. Okay? And I told you last week that we were speaking sequentially, but all that would happen. We looked at the passage in 1 Corinthians 15, as fast as you can blink your eyes, or as a lightning bolt shoots across. Okay? That's it. And the reason I like that, that's pretty simple. I can understand that. This other system gets quite complicated, as you'll see. The other system says, and I'll just do it real quickly, and then we'll look at the chart. Jesus is going to come back, but invisibly. And he's going to come back invisibly and take out of this world all the believers. That's where you say, you know, if, if in case of rapture, this car will be empty. Okay, So, boop, 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 everybody's disappearing all over the place. Okay, And the reason for this, as we'll see, is to avoid... Is things are going to get real bad on the earth. And according to this theory, uh, Jesus does this to spare his people suffering. Yeah, well, I wish he would do that before, too, but that's another story. So it's a seven-year period, and then we'll talk about that in a moment. Then he comes back visibly. Okay? And when he comes back visibly, he raises all the dead Christians, just the dead Christians. And then he rules the whole earth, right here on this earth, in Jerusalem, for a thousand years. Now, it's really difficult for me, and I'm not trying to be facetious, or nasty. And I'm not the only one to ask this question. It's real hard to understand the real main point of why we have to have Jesus rule on earth for a thousand years. Why can't we all just go to heaven? <laughs> the new world. And you, I, I can give you answers, but none of them really make sense to me. And then after, after Christians dominate the earth <coughs> for a thousand years, then Satan's going to have a little rebellion at the end. And then that's when there'll be... <coughs> Uh, the last day judgment, and then he'll raise the unbelieving dead and send them off to hell. Okay. Well, let's look at these charts, and it's going to take some time. These things are quite complicated. If you're not from a church that does this, you, you can't imagine how complicated this gets. And, and they're not even agreed on all the details. So I'm just giving you some of the more popular format. All right. Okay, so let's look at the end times and Revelation. Though Revelation can be difficult to understand because it uses so many symbols, it actually provides a very simple description of the end times as the early Christians noticed. For example, after reading Revelation and the rest of Scripture, the early Christians summarized the end times as follows. Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He will come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. In other words, that should give you a hint in the creeds, which are quite ancient, there's no mention of what? A rapture or a millennium. And these creeds were around very, very early on. How early? 100, 120, 200. Okay? And then the Nicene Creed being finalized in 325. No mention of the rapture, no mention of the millennium in any of the historic creeds. 
For centuries, this simple summary of the end times rooted in Revelation guided Christian teaching. Today, however, false teachers have created many confusing and complex interpretations of Revelation. They have added false doctrines like the rapture and the millennium to Revelation's summary of the end times. As a result, many Christians are confused about what will happen in the future. For a simple, clear understanding of how Revelation differs uh, modern false opinions, study the timeline below. And then uh, look up the biblical references. Well, I don't know how much we're going to do that. We're not going to have time to do all that. You'll have to look them up on your own. First, let's look at the false timeline. Christ's visible earthly life. That's real simple, isn't it? Okay. Then the church age. And who knows how long the church age will be. Then Christ returns what? Secretly. That's, a, that's going to be a red flag right there. And we'll, we're going to do, see it on the other chart. That's a red flag. Secretly. To resurrect or rapture all true Christians. So they're all gone. There aren't any Christians in the world now. Then seven years of tribulation. Okay, a lot of hard times here. And then the battle of Armageddon, where evil is defeated. And uh, the problem with the battle of Armageddon, in their view, and we'll see this uh, maybe uh, later. uh, The battle of Armageddon in the book of Revelation is not a military battle. It's spiritual, right? I mean, there's so many quotes in the Bible. Paul says, our weapons are not of this world. Yeah? Jesus tells the disciple, put away your swords. There's no, there's no physical earthly battle. This is, so that's what this is wrong about that too. Okay, so anyway, a, a physical battle. Then the visible return of Christ to bind Satan and begin the millennium. Now, they, un, they misunderstand Revelation 20, which we'll look at briefly. Satan is already bound. We're not waiting for him to be bound. He's already bound. And without looking up any Bible passages, when do you think he was bound? Or what period of time? Or in whose life? Christ. And we can look up many passages which we may or may not have time for tonight. Satan was bound, restricted, with the life and death of Christ. It is finished okay so there's a thousand years where Christians dominate the earth and then Satan is released we talk about this the little season in Revelation I'll talk about that later and then uh, he, he is defeated and then the resurrection of the wicked for the final judgment and then the new heavens and the new earth now I'm going to say more but I'm going to wait till we get to the other one because there's different versions of this let's just briefly at one uh, of the timelines that is true That's the second one. Christ bound Satan. See it there? By his death and resurrection, Jesus has bound or cast out Satan. You can look up the passages on your own. They're underneath there for for you to look at. A thousand years is symbolic. This is the only place that the thousand year reign is referred to. And um, its symbolism is this. Ten is a symbol for perfection or completion. Ten commandments, for example. 10 times 10 times 10 are three tens. What do you suppose three is a symbol for? Which we've talked about earlier in another lesson. The Trinity. Okay, So a thousand is going to be symbolic for complete time. And, and so the thousand years, and the thousand years are the same thing as the three and a half years or the 42 months that's in the book of Revelation. Basically, the thousand years is a symbolic number for the entire New Testament period from the first coming of Christ to his 
second coming. We're in the thousand years right now because the thousand years is a symbol from the first coming to the second coming, not to be understood literally. Christ reigns through His church right now, and we'll look up some passages later. At the, towards the end of the world, Satan is released to deceive the nations. Right now, we'll see this later, uh, Satan can no longer deceive the nations. Why not? Because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, mankind can know what? What's the opposite of deceit? The truth. Satan can no longer deceive the world or scare people with death. We know the truth. We know the gospel of Jesus Christ. He can't fool us. Okay. But towards the very end, and this is kind of a mystery about how this is going to show itself, he, will, uh, he thinks he's going to get the upper hand. But basically, the book of Revelation, and you kind of saw it a little bit in your answer about towards the end, th- things are not going to be good for the church. I mean, for example, when you look around, do you see some things that are pretty nasty about the visible organized church today? That's always been that way. It could get worse. Okay? The church could, could more and more could be less faithful to Jesus. Lots of false doctrine, lots of wacko stuff done in the name of Jesus in the Christian church and so forth and so on, not to mention any kinds of uh, persecutions. So between persecutions of Christians and Christians being seducted or, or seduced away from the truth, you, you see what I mean? Yeah, that's what the two beasts are in the book of Revelation, which I can't do a whole study of the book of Revelation. But basically what you have in those two things, the two beasts, one is the, the influence and seduction of the world. That's what the whore of Babylon is. It's the seduction, right? That's why Jesus said to be in the world but not because the world will seduce you and you'll start living according to the world standards instead of... Okay. So that one beast represents everything in the world, everything in the world that tries to seduce Christians into ungodly, sinful ways of thinking and living. And then the other beast represents the false church, which is associated with the Antichrist. Now, in other words, a church that will look real and good and everything, but it's a phony church. It's a false church that will deceive people. Well, anyway, he, uh, he thinks he's going to be able to release people uh, or deceive people. And the only thing I'll say here, too, we might look at it in more detail later. You know, the so-called Battle of Armageddon? And I'll try to show you that a little bit. Remember, that's not a political military battle. That's a spiritual battle. And what we're going to read in Revelation 20, if I get to it here in just a little bit, Satan's going to array his forces against the church, thinking, I'm just about ready to squish the church of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is going to come back and go, okay, you're done. That's the battle. Now think about it for a minute. Really think about it. Now the devil's powerful, right? He's an evil what? Angel. Are angels powerful? Remember we did the lesson on angels? Evil Angels are powerful, right? Well, let's pause here. Okay, they're powerful. Who's Jesus? God. Do you see what I'm getting at here? You, you really think the devil, as powerful as he is, can stand up to Jesus Christ, who's God in human form? There's no battle. Satan thinks there's going to be a battle. And he's about ready to make his move, and Jesus comes back and says, okay, that's enough of that. There's no battle. That's it. Well, there's a battle, but it's very what? Quick. Yes, Steve. So, <clears throat> um, I got kind of confused about when you said uh, um, 
say we're kind of trying to confuse with death. Being a Christian, aren't we supposed to believe it? I mean, well, Jesus already conquered death. That's right. We're not supposed to be afraid. That's correct. That's correct. You can't, I mean, if you're a true Christian, how are you going to tempt us with death when we believe in Jesus? Well, it varies from person to person. That's kind of similar to Clarence. Maybe you won't, Steve. Praise God. But some other Christian might be afraid of death. And you should not be harsh on them. You should not judge them. You should comfort them. See what I'm getting at here? Yeah. Well, I, yeah. No, I'm not saying you would. I'm just giving you a scenario here. You know. So, yes, there's, uh, what I'm trying to say is a Christian might be afraid of death. It's, it's a false statement. Oh, Christians are never afraid of death. Oh, who says? Yeah, it's true. We shouldn't be afraid of death. That's true. You know? But, you know, how, I don't know how I'm going to feel when I cross that, that line. You know? And you won't either when Satan starts working on you. You know, so we hope, you know, and that's where we put our prayers, and we hope we'll be ready for that day. Um, but remember, death is scary. We talked about that because something's happening to us that God never planned. Our soul leaving our body—that's not normal. Yeah. Yes, Clarence. A lot of churches are trying to accommodate the church to say the new. Generations, the things are coming, and they want to accommodate. And I, I feel like that's Satan and the devil. Well, I agree with you. I agree with you. You know what? What example we may or may not look at. We may have total agreement or some of it, but I agree with you. That's one of the dangers in the church in the Western world right now is accommodating itself to Western culture. No question about it. No question, either in doctrine or morals. Yeah, that, that's part of the onslaught that's going on in the Western church right now. You're very insightful, Clarence. I agree with you. And, and, and lots of people in the church, theologians, pastors, lay people, are, are very concerned. You know. Okay, and then we have the, the judgment day. Now, this is kind of a quick overview. So let's go to the other one, which is a little bit more involved here. The one that says appendix number one. And I'll go through a little bit more slowly on this one. Yeah. Yeah, please. Yeah. It's just the way it's worded. Yeah. It says Jesus will return visibly and defeat Satan. Yeah. So does that mean that those alive at that time will actually see Jesus and will actually see Satan? Oh, I don't know. The Bible doesn't speak that clearly. Uh, yeah, all I know is that the Jesus is coming. There'll be a judgment day. And, of course, it's all going to happen like this, remember? That's the other thing. You, 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 well, I wasn't yeah. sure if that's when it was going to happen. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't know how much we'll actually see with our eyes, you know. Um, as long as I end up in the right place and the devil's not there, I'm going to be real happy. But, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think that's too of a detailed a question. I don't, I don't know how to answer that. No, no, it's just that I, 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 and you already know me from all these lessons. I can't answer a question explicitly if it's not explicit in the biblical text, unless I give just kind of a guess on what I know. I, I don't know how to answer that completely. Uh, other than that, yes, we're going to see him visibly, but whether we'll see Satan or not, how that's going to work, I'm not sure how that's going to work out. Yeah. Steve? You know, uh, also I want to ask you about, okay, like the, 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 the passage where it says uh, there will be two in the field and one will be taken. Yes, yeah. Now, doesn't, isn't, that, doesn't, isn't that part of judgment? Yes, yes. Now, let me explain that real quickly because that's a good point and then I'll move on. I just to, because it's it's how you understand that. Here's the wrong way to understand it. The wrong way to understand it is the way the people who believe in the rapture with the millennium. They believe that's going to happen, okay, at the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Jesus on earth. You got that? 
The truth is, that's going to happen. We do believe in a rapture, but not as it's popularly understood. That's going to happen. But that's not going to be the beginning of a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. That's the judgment day. That's the end of the world. Well, what I was thinking about it was that um, when Jesus comes, we're not all going to be dead. No, we talked about that last week. So, I mean, be, like we said, there'll be two in the field and one will be taken. That's right. I'm saying if you're, if you're, if you're, if you're in Christ, yeah. you'll be one to take it and the one that's not unbelievable will not be taken. Well, yeah, and, and the, remember we talked about our whole body is going to be transformed in, instantaneously, yeah. But the key I want you to get here to understand this is the, the, the people who believe in the rapture and the millennium put that in the point at the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ. There's nothing in the biblical text that says that. They bring that from Revelation 20 into the text. Okay? But that is the judgment day, not the beginning of a thousand-year reign of Christ. Okay, well, let's look at that. We're going to start at the bottom and work our way up. Because there's, there's four points here, A, B, C, and D. See that? Okay. At the bottom, point D, it says, ah, millennialism. Remember, millennial means a thousand. With the A in front of it, that's called an alpha privative. This means this is the view that does not believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. Okay. This is the Lutheran position, but it's also the position of historic Christianity and uh, most of Christians today. So let's look at it real quickly. The church age, remember, thousand years symbolized the entire New Testament period, right? From the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. Right before Jesus returns, right before Jesus returns, and we don't know how long that is. In the Revelation, it says Satan's little season. Okay, so we don't know if that's five minutes or five years. Or we don't want it, but what is it? It's going to be what? Whatever it is, it's going to be brief. And that's all we can say because it doesn't say more than that. I don't know how brief, but it's going to be brief. This is where Satan thinks, aha, look what's happening. I've persecuted the church so people are leaving the faith. I've seduced many Christians so that, yeah, they're still in the church, but who cares? They're not faithful to the message anymore. You know, they're only Christians in name. And he, and the idea is Satan's going to think that he looks like he has the upper hand. And when you're in warfare, real warfare, when do you make your move militarily? When you think you've got the upper, now's the time to, and that's kind of what you get the impression that Satan's going to see. Okay. Because the church is not going to be in good shape. He's going to make some kind of move. Don't know what that is. Okay? And Jesus is going to then squish him. Which, when we get to Revelation to get to the text, I'll show you that. So it's a very brief season. And then what happens? Jesus comes back and there's the resurrection and the rapture. Steve, see the rapture there? All that means is, is that there's the separation of the sheep and the sheep and the goats. Separation of people. Right? There's Christians and Non-Christians, people are raised from the dead and either go to hell, raised from the dead to go into the new world. People who are alive, their body will be transformed to go into the new world or whatever. Yes, Clarence. When it says where uh, if you receive the mark of the devil, that you're, you're going to pass the opposite way. But that, when I read all that, it seems like it's taking more than just a few days or weeks for the devil to accomplish all this. So he's going to be here. Well, no, no. This is, this is why I don't want to talk about the whole book of Revelation, because you're not, most of you are not prepared for a study of the book of Revelation. What you're describing is de- the devil's activity in this entire time period. Yeah. And then at the very end, he's going to have a what? A push. 
Yeah. So, so when you describe the phase that looks like it's going to take more than time, more than a little season, you're describing the devil act, devil's activity right now. Yeah, in, in the thousand-year period between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. Because while Satan is defeated and he's bound, that doesn't mean he's doing nothing. He's quite active, and I just don't have time to go into all that, but he works through certain agencies. Okay, this is why it's good just to leave the book of Revelation alone for most of you, to be honest with you, unless you have a good study course. Uh, you know What you need to do, you get to know the rest of your Bible really good, I'm giving you spiritual advice. And once you get to know your Bible really good, then go to the book of Revelation. Otherwise, you're going to get yourself in trouble. Okay, so pretty simple there. Now, let's go to uh, post-millennialism. You see the word post? Post is in contrast. Look at point A and B. You have the word what in front of millennialism? Pre. Okay, you've got pre and post-millennialism. Okay, what's the difference? Premillennialism means that Jesus comes back prior to the thousand-year reign. Postmillennialism means Jesus comes back after the thousand-year reign. Okay. Well, let's look at this one. Um, postmillennialism. Okay. You see the church age, right? And then it says golden era, dominion theology. Okay. Notice the little note I have in the upper left-hand corner of C. This view is not as popular today. This view says that for a thousand years the church will dominate the earth, and this view is trying to make a comeback in that theology called dominion theology. Let me explain this to you. This view agrees with our position that the thousand years is symbolic. Okay? But what this view says is, well, Jesus isn't going to come back to set up a thousand-year kingdom. But what's going to happen is the church it's just so, it, the church is just going to grow, and after a while, there's going to be so many Christians. We Christians are just going to take over the world. I won't, I'm being silly now. You, you can know when I go into my silly mode. For example, in this golden era, shoot, I won't have to waste money on putting an AIC mailer out in the community and spending all that money. People will be knocking on my door and giving me phone calls. Do you have an adult information class? Which you'd like to go? We have 500 people like to come to your adult information class. You get what I'm getting at here? That the church is just going to blossom and it's just going to be hunky-dory and wonderful and it's just going to be great for a long period of time. And then there'll be Satan's little season. Okay? And then the universal resurrection and rapture. So this view basically is the same as D other than our view is the church isn't going to get better and better and better. But the view in point C says, yeah, the church is going to get better and better and better. And that's what's going to make the devil mad. You with me? Okay. Now, point C is not as popular today. It's going to be A and B that are real popular today. Although there are some people in certain churches, and they tend to be Calvinistic churches, is trying to make a comeback. But whether it'll be make a comeback or not, I don't know. But, okay. Um, okay. Now, point B. This is called historic Pre-millennialism. In contrast to A, which says what kind of pre-millennialism? Dispensationalism. See, I told you this wasn't easy. <laughs> okay, what's the difference? Okay, here's the difference. It, historic premillennialism says, it is true that some early church fathers believed in a thousand-year reign of Christ. That's true. That's why it's called historic premillennialism. Okay. 
However, it was always a minority position in the church and by the 4th century was totally rejected. Everybody follow that? Now, another thing I want you to notice, does point B look a little more simple than point A? (laughs) Notice also in point B, there's no rapture mentioned, right? So what I'm trying to say is, we'll get to it in a moment, point A, dispensational premillennialism, which we'll get to in just a minute, did not exist in the church until the 19th century. Because dispensational premillennialism is in contrast to historic millennialism. You got that? So listen carefully. It is true, the teaching of a thousand year reign of Christ in the church was found in some early church fathers. It was always a minority position, and by the 4th century it was rejected. But that's different from point A, as you can see with all the diagrams and everything. And there was no concept of the rapture in point B, the historic view of premillennialism. Okay, so let's look at point B then. So you have the church age. It's fairly popular today too, but it's going to be point A that's going to be the big one. What do we object to in historic premillennialism? Well, you have two resurrections uh, and a physical reign of Christ. Uh, When you look at the Bible, there's only... And forget Revelation 20... You know, that's what people always want to run to. Let's run off to Revelation 20. Let me say this now. Is there any imagery and symbolism in Revelation? And how much of that do you understand? (laughs) Here's my point. From our perspective, the heir, at least one of the heirs, of people who believe in millennialism and the rapture, they go to a very difficult book like Revelation and chapter 20 come up with their view and interpretation. Now listen to how I say this. And then take that view back to the rest of the New Testament and understand all the very clear passages in the Gospels and the Epistles in view of Revelation 20. You don't do that. This is basic principles of interpretation. You don't take a difficult passage and then take that and interpret easy passage. No, no, no. You understand the easy passages in the Bible... Okay. You take those easy passages in the Bible that you clearly understand, and you take that to Revelation 20 to be able to understand Revelation 20. Okay. Well, to say it simply, you don't read the last chapter of the book to understand the book. Okay, that, that's a good way. Say it that way too. Yeah, say it that way too. Okay. Here's my point. If you forget Revelation 20, which we're not looking at right now, there is nowhere in the entire Bible that says there's two separate days of resurrections. There's only one day of resurrection. Okay, only one day. Also, in the rest of the Bible, if you forget Revelation 20, forget Revelation 20, there's not one word about a physical reign of Christ on the earth for a thousand years. Okay, so those are the main uh, objections that we have to historic premillennialism. Now, it gets real confusing with point A. And this is what most TV preachers uh, view today. Uh, Hagee, Falwell, all those guys. Um, Okay, now, a couple of things. Where does the word dispensational premillennialism come from? This is a real long, complicated story. But it originated in England with a man named John Darby. 
This is his own little theory he came up with. It eventually ended up with, anybody hear of the Schofield Bible? Please don't read that. The Schofield Bible was built completely around dispensationalism. What is dispensationalism? Well, this should be a red flag for you. God had seven different dispensations, seven different eras, that He saved people in those eras in different ways. You follow that? In other words, the exact opposite of what I told you. What if I told you the whole Bible is about? Jesus. And just as people in the New Testament are saved by faith in Jesus, how did I tell you people in the Old Testament are saved? Jesus. We have faith in the Jesus who has come. In the Old Testament, they had faith in the Jesus who was coming. Dispensationalism says, no, there are seven distinct periods of time, and people are saved in different ways apart from Christ. That should be a big red flag. That's the kind of theology, then, that is developed here. Uh, and you can see it. Dispensationalism, right? It's different dispensations. Okay, and that's, that's new. That was never found in the history of the church until the 19th century. Okay, so what do they say? Here we go. There's the church age, which we're in. Then there's the secret return of Jesus. Now, does anybody here, other, forget Revelation 20, does anybody know of any secret coming of Jesus in any place in the New Testament? There isn't any. So this should be a red flag. There is no secret return of Christ, and it, but they say He will come invisibly, and this is when He'll rapture all the believers. He'll take all the believers out of the world. They'll go up into heaven with Him bodily. And they will do that to be able to be spared tribulation. Well, I bet some of the people that lived early in their church wish that would have happened in their day. How come those people in that seven-year period get to get saved all this tribulation, but everybody else has to go through it? As a matter of fact, Paul says in the book of Acts, we, uh, we must enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation. Jesus says in John uh, uh, 16, in this world you'll have much tribulation. But these people are apparently going to escape all that tribulation. Okay, so that's all bad, and none of it's scriptural. Now, during this seven-year tribulation, what's going to happen? See that fine print that I have in there that you have to have glasses to read? <laughs> Well, this is basically what's going to happen. I'll read it for you if you can't read it all. Remember what it says, Jews. It's their belief that during this time period, all the Jews will become Christians. This is why these TV preachers are, are so obsessed with Israel. Okay. You know, and they'll talk about the temple being rebuilt. Now, if you've been listening to me or you knew stuff before you got here, if you got Jesus, why do you want the temple rebuilt? I'll tell you why. You ready? This is part of this bad dispensational stuff that goes all with this theology. The church of Christ and the Jewish people are saved in different ways. See, it's our belief, it's our belief, and it's been the historic belief of the entire Christian church. The Christian church replaced the nation of Israel. Okay, I've got tons of passages to back that up. Even Jesus says in some of his parables to the Jews, he tells parables and he says, the kingdom of God's going to be, some of you know this passage, going to be taken away from you and given to other people who will produce its fruits. I could give you tons of passages. But dispensational theologians think that Israel, okay, they're the special people of God. Well, wait a minute. I thought you had to be in Christ to be the special people. You see where I'm going with this? I'm being purposely nasty about this because it denies Christ. 
Yeah, you got some dispensational preacher who say Jesus is the way to heaven, but not when we get to the Jews. Hmm. I have heard that all my life. You heard that all your life? Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. That, and that is one of their foundational errors, among others. They make a distinction between the church and the people of Israel, who have their own way. Bad stuff. So during this time, uh, the, the church will be there, and Jews will uh, come to Christ and do all these things, and they'll rebuild the temple. See the temple there? And then the Antichrist, usually, that's the next one, that's point three. The Antichrist in this system, and I know this all doesn't make sense, and it's not just because I'm communicating it poorly. I'm being nasty again on purpose. I've studied this stuff. I'm not the smartest person in the world, but I'm not dumb. I can't understand a lot of this stuff, to be honest with you. Did you ever experience that? Yes. Okay. Anyway, the reason the Antichrist is mentioned after the Jews in the temple is because in this dispensational view, the Antichrist in this view somehow is going to be a Jew. And it's all going to be somehow with the temple being built and things like that. And then comes the tribulation because the Antichrist is in this period. So here comes the tribulation. And then Jesus will return at the end of the seven years visibly. And he'll bring with him all the people that left with him seven years earlier. And now what he'll do, bringing back all those Christians back with him, they're going to set up a physical earthly kingdom. And, uh, did you ever hear that before? Can you explain to me what we're, what's the purpose of this thousand-year kingdom? I don't know. I never got past a point number three. Okay. Can anybody, does anybody have any experience here? I mean, I could tell you certain things, but it's all meaningless. What's the purpose of a thousand years? I don't know. I mean, I can tell you things that they say, but they're all meaningless. Okay, so he returns. This is the sheep goat's judgment. He sets up a thousand years. Okay, So we have a thousand years where Christians dominate the earth, whatever that means. And then we have the Satan's little season where there's rebellion. And then there's the judgment and the unjust white throne uh, judgment where the unbelievers are, are judged. Now, I have a couple of points there. You can see the problem with it. Go up where it says the secret return and the visible return. See that? And it says number one. So point one, the problem here is we have two returns of Christ. That The, the Bible doesn't know anything about two returns of Christ. Okay? Go a little bit over to your right. It says, and number two, it says two judgments. The Bible only knows of one judgment. Drop down underneath the thousand years. It says, number three, there are also two resurrections. And if you forget Revelation 20, which we'll probably look at in a little bit, um, there's only one resurrection. So there's all kinds of problems, and we're only looking at about 1% of the problems with this kind of theology. Um, let me go through Revelation 20 with you very quickly. And I'm not going to get into a whole study of Revelation, so don't expect that. But I want to look at Revelation 20 real quickly. And say a few key things. And remember, you also have, if you're, if you're willing, also get, already given you some literature to look at this one and this one. So you can look at those things. Thank you. Okay, let's look at Revelation 20 real quickly. And uh, I can't go into as much depth as I'd like to, so I'm going to maybe make references and then you'll have to look them up on your own. Yes, I have done Revelation here at Messiah about, what, two years ago? Took us a whole year to get through it. 
So, you know, just as you finish it, then you get a visitor in church say, do you ever do Revelation? <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> That's a funny story, too, I'll tell you if I haven't told you before. You know, the book of Revelation. You have, you know, we have a vicar. He's t- just turned 26 years old, so he goes back to the seminary. And he'll, when he graduates, he'll be about 27 years old, and he's going to become a pastor. And pretend with me he goes out to, uh, you know, Flatbush, Nebraska someplace, you know, and just people of the earth that's loving dearly, but he's a brand new young pastor. And, of course, he makes a, he makes a rookie pastor error the first month he's there during Bible study. Here's his rookie error. He asked the congregation what they'd like to study. Bad mistake, young pastor rookie, because I'll tell you what they're going to say. They're going to say, we want to study Revelation. We don't understand basic doctrine or what it means to be a Lutheran, but let's study Revelation. (laughs) Okay, so he takes them seriously. He says, well, I ask him. I guess I got to do it. So he starts studying, you know, and getting all his preparations and everything. And finally, one day he goes out to visit one of his elders and his elders is a farmer, so he has a big farm there and everything, kind of just a man of the earth and good, good, devout Christian. And he's having a cup of coffee with him out there. And he's saying, well, you know, the congregations asked me to study Revelation, and I'm really working on it, but to be honest with you, I'm, a, I'm just a little bit nervous about this, you know, if I'm prepared to do this or not. And the farmer, the elder says, well, pastor, what's the problem? Well, it's, it's a complicated book. I'm not sure, you know, what, what it's really saying. And he says, well, I understand it, Pastor. And he's saying, well, why did I go to seminary all these years? He says, well, what do you mean? What does it mean? Well, Pastor, it's real simple. The book of Revelation says that Jesus wins in the end. (laughs) And that's true. true. All that symbolism and all that stuff that you don't understand, that's the basic man. Be faithful. Don't get don't get put off by all the immorality and the corruption or what you see in the church or false doctrine or persecution. Be faithful, because Jesus wins in the end. And if you're with Jesus, you're going to be okay. That's what it means. Okay, let's look very quickly. Just a couple of things here. I'm not going to do the entire book, but just a few, I mean, a, a chapter. Okay, chapter 20. I saw an angel coming down uh, out of heaven, having the key to the abbess. That's, that's, the, that's the door to hell. The abbess is hell. Okay. Hades, and holding in his hands a great chain. Now, this angel here doesn't really matter. Real quickly, we'll do this. Uh, many commentators say this is Jesus because sometimes Jesus is called. Do anybody remember what the word angel means? Messenger could be a human messenger, could be a spiritual messenger, could be Jesus as a messenger. Other people will say, and it doesn't really matter that this is the angel of Jesus because what does Jesus have at his disposal? Angels. So whether it's Jesus himself or an angel who represent him doesn't matter. Okay. And holding his hand, he had a great chain. Okay. He seized the dragon. Now we're going to need a little help here because it's in earlier parts of the book of Revelation. The ancient what? Think of Genesis 3, the Garden of Eden, who is the devil or Satan. And he bound him. For a thousand years. Ah, that's the big question. Well, a couple of things here. If you read the book of Revelation, you know it's chock full of images and symbolism. Now, point number one, you know this can't be a real chain. Why, why, why are we not talking about a real physical chain? It's not a complicated question. Common sense. Well, Satan has been real 
physical. He's not physical. He's a spirit being. What, what would you do? Put, yeah, I know. But if you put a chain on a spirit being, it goes, whoop, just falls right through him, right? So already we're talking about imagery, symbolism, figure of speech. Well, if he's not physically bound, what does he mean he's bound? And when we read the whole thing, we know he was bound by, by Christ. So would this be talking about Christ's resurrection? It's, it's, it's the whole package, yeah. Yeah, because for, for, for Satan to be defeated, right, he had to do everything, right? With his sinless life, his innocent suffering death, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension to heaven, his down at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. So it's the whole thing defeated Satan. And I have tons of passages. I just don't know if we're going to look them all up right now. Okay, so the key question is, when was he bound? And we're saying this is when he bound. And the thousand years, remember, the thousand years are the complete time between Jesus' first coming, Christmas... And it's coming at the end of the time. That could be 10,000 years or 5,000 years or 3,000 years. But it's not literal. Ten remembers the symbol for perfection or completion. Three tens, symbol for God, is the complete or perfect time. Okay. He threw him into the abyss. That is what? Hades or hell. And locked and sealed it over him to keep him from what? Now, here's the key question. This doesn't mean that the devil can't move anywhere. It's not like he's sitting here like this. Because of all the rest of the Bible we know, and even in the context here, the purpose of the binding him isn't that the devil can't do anything, but it can no longer what? It's right in the text. He can't deceive anymore. Why? Because in Jesus Christ, we know the, we know the truth. And when we take the gospel, wherever we go, it's like, let's do it this way. It's like if it's all dark in here, right? That would be like the kingdom of Satan. That's what's often said, right? And then we turn on the light switch, what happens? Light comes on, you know, right? Well, wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ goes into the world, it's like the light of Christ going into a darkened world, which is in the hands of Satan. And then when people know the light of Christ, Satan can't deceive them anymore. They can't say, you know, you're damned because look look what you've done. Because Jesus says, don't worry, taking care of that, you're all forgiven. Or Satan says, ah, you're going to die. You're going to be damned. And then Jesus comes and says, no, no, I've taken care of that. You're not going to be damned. You trust in me. You're okay. I forgive you. I love you. Don't be afraid of death. Don't be afraid of the judgment day. He can't deceive the nations anymore. So that's what the binding is. Not that he can't move around, but he can't deceive anymore because of Christ. All right, we're going to pause right there. We're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you could do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break when we come back. The balance of today's lecture regarding the eschaton and the millennium and the rapture. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. Hey, do you want to feel holier than thou? Try Bible Thirst, holy drinks for people who need gratuitous amounts of piety. With all new flavors like prosperity, instant abundance. It's like adding your bank account to an electrical storm. Sound the alarm. You're going to be uncomfortably holy. What's that? You want mana? Well, how about super mana? Made with lightning. Real lightning. Preaching. Ah. You'll be good at it. It's a holy drink for men. Clergy. These aren't your pastor's puns. They are righteous puns. Piety puns. Sinner, saint, sinner, saint. Prayers, lights, cross lights, power lights, more lights than your body has room for. You'll be so holy, Mother Teresa will be like, slow down. And you're like, no. And roundhouse kick her in the face with your Bible pants. You know, so much holiness, holiness. Ah. Just praying all the time. Power praying, power preaching, power praising, power fasting, power meditating, power laughing, power spawning, Chester. You know, so much Chester. Just like Esau. Give prosperity to babies and they'll be holy too. Make your babies run abnormally fast. They'll be as fast as Elijah. People watch them running and think they're Elijah. They'll race as fast as Elijah. In a race with the actual Elijah. And it'll be a time they get deported back to Israel. Hey, go with the for sure thing. Don't gamble on your afterlife. Jesus. Try Bible thirst. The energy that will make you uh, holy. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Bum. Warning, the Bible actually doesn't teach that Jesus secretly comes back and then comes back again. One time is Jesus' second coming, according to Scripture. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us. That's right. It's a partnership by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It is a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. Okay, here is the balance of today's lecture on the eschaton, the millennium, millennium, and the rapture by Pastor Ernie Lastman. Here we go. 
Okay, uh, until the thousand years were ended, after that he must be set free, and we'll see this in just a moment, for what? Short time, which we're going to get to another verse in just a minute. So right at the very end, it's like Satan's going to think, well, here's my time to make my, my move, and we're going to see in just a couple more verses, he's going to make his move, and, God, and Jesus is going to go, yeah, I'm glad you did that, as we're going to see. Okay. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. Now, you're going to have to trust me here because I don't know if we can take the time to look up all the passages. Some of you know this. Does some of you know the passage in 1 Corinthians 6 that Christians are going to judge angels? Okay. Does some of you know the passage in the Gospels? Jesus tells the disciples that all who trust in him will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay. This is what he's talking about. When we belong to Jesus, Jesus judges, and as Jesus judges... We judge with Him. In other words, we reign with Christ. But this is invisible. It's all by what? Faith right now. But when will it be known? On the day of the resurrection. Because on the day of the resurrection, all these grand things that we're saying, we reign with Christ right now. Who rules over the whole world? Christ does. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Make it real simple here. Through faith and baptism, who are we united to? Christ. So if Christ reigns, who reigns with Him? We do. And that's why we're called a kingdom of priests and a kingdom of kings. We reign with him. And on the day of the resurrection, all the people that think that we're just blowing smoke and don't believe us, we can say on the day of the resurrection, see, we tried to tell you. Now, this all starts here in this earth and on death. Now, let's see this. I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge, that's Christians, and saw souls, point number one. Not bodies. He sees what? Souls, not bodies. Now, you're going to see how you're going to go here. In other words, based upon last week's lesson, these are the souls of Christians who, in the context here, who are beheaded, who are martyred, who died for Christ. Their body was put in the ground and their soul went to be with Christ. Okay? And with Christ, they rule with Him already as Christ rules. Because of their testimony for Jesus and because of the Word of God. Uh, there's a little bit I don't like the NIV translation here because it's... See the word they if you've got the NIV? It sounds like we're talking about the same person. We're not. Does anybody have a different translation by chance? A different Bible translation? No, we all have the NIV. Here's the point. There's two categories here. The first category, all those beheaded, symbolize all those... And I'm thinking about the whole book of Revelation. Those who are beheaded for Christ because of their witness and testimony are all those who are martyred for their, their confession. The second category, which are the they here, are those who had not worshipped the beast and the image. In other words, they may or may not have been martyred, but they, did, they died without bow, bowing down either, right? They died with faith. Revelation 2.10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. But these are souls, not bodies. Okay. Now, then it says, they came to life. Uh, I really don't like that translation. It's okay. Uh, but a better translation simply says, they lived. They lived. And they lived, not only lived, what did they do? Reigned. Reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now remember, there's not one word of a body here, right? So he's mentioned the reign of a thousand years, but only of what? Souls. Now let me give you an example. Okay. And remember, and the thousand years is symbolic, right? 
You and I die. Our body goes to the ground and rots. Where does our soul go? To be with whom? Christ. And our soul will be with Christ for how long? Until what? The judgment day. That's what it says. That's what it says. So the soul's lived. And here it means spiritual life. I, I, I have lots of passages. If we have time, we'll do it later. I'm kind of pacing myself here. That talk about... That talk about um, when we're, when we're given faith in Jesus Christ, that's like a resurrection. Okay, we've been born again. And I have specific Bible passages in Romans, Colossians, and Ephesians that uses the very word that we have been raised up with Christ. Okay, Raised up with Christ from deadness to life. So the, the live here, you ready? The live, they live means spiritual life in contrast to unbelievers. It's not talking about their bodies living. Because there hasn't been one word of mention of a body yet, has there? It's their souls. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. Okay. The rest of the dead means the spiritually dead. Okay. The spiritually dead. And the spiritually dead did not come to life. In other words, these are unbelievers who were never brought to saving faith in Christ and died without faith in Christ. They never had spiritual life. Okay, until the thousand years is in. That's where they die. This is the first resurrection. What is the first resurrection? I'm going to give you some passages after I'm all done talking about this. The first resurrection is a is a the same reality looking at it from two perspectives. The first resurrection is when we're brought to faith in Jesus. Okay. And then closely related is when the soul goes to be with Christ in paradise between death and the resurrection. That's the first resurrection. Okay. In other words, it's not physical. It's spiritual. And I'll give you some Bible passages in just a minute. Blessed are those who have part in the first resurrection. Why? Because the second death, as we're going to see, that's hell. The second death is hell. Has no power over them. Well, why doesn't, the, why doesn't second death, why doesn't hell, the lake of fire, have any power over them? Because they've been born again. They have spiritual life. You know? That's like what I said a little moment ago. Right now, if we have faith in Jesus Christ, we're spiritually what? Alive. Now, some of you, if you know your Bible a little bit, because we can't look up all the passages tonight. Some of you already know this. If you have faith in Jesus, you've already passed from death to life, already in this life. And when you die, your soul goes to be with Christ. Now, on the day of the resurrection, when your soul's put back in your body, are you going to be subject to the second death? No. no, because you already experienced what? The first resurrection. Right? You're already a Christian. Your soul's with Christ. So you have nothing to fear about the second death. Is it making sense? So the first resurrection is a spiritual reality. There's no mention of bodies here, and I'll give you passages in just a minute. So the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God, okay, which is all over the Bible, and of Christ, and will reign with Him for a thousand years. Meaning our soul will be with Christ for however long that is. It's not literally. If you and I die today, our body goes to the ground, our soul goes with Christ, pretend with me, Jesus doesn't come back for another 5,000 years. Well, our soul's with Christ for how long? 5,000 years, which would be figuratively the thousand years that we'd be reigning with Christ because we're united to Christ. 
Now, I'm going to go on a little bit further, but let me give you uh, just a few Bible passages to show kind of the reality here. And I've got tons, but I can't show them all to you. But I'll just tickle your imagination to back up what I've been saying. Let's go to John 5. Uh, John 5, verse 24. Verse 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, will not be condemned. Now hear overtones about won't be the second death, like a fire. He has what? Crossed over from death to life already in this life. And we can look up other passages too. When you believe in Jesus, you've already left death and you've come into life already now. By faith. I tell you the truth, verse 25. A time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Now let me tell you what he's talking about here. Right? He's talking about having faith in Christ. Because he talked about crossing from death to life. When you believe in Jesus, you've crossed. That's what he's saying. So through the gospel, when you believe the gospel, you've already crossed from death to life. Verse 26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to judge because he is the Son of Man. Now, notice, these verses have been talking about spiritual death and life. Now we're going to go to physical. Watch this. Verse 28, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear their voice. How many? All. Do you hear two judgment days here? No. He's going to come, and all. Not some, not some, all who are in their graves. And they will come out. Those who have done good will rise to live. Those who have done evil will rise to be condemned. In other words, how many resurrections and judgments? One. The same resurrection, the same judgment, it all happens at the same time. Now a couple other things real quickly. Um, Let's see, where do I want to go to next? Let's go to Romans 6, which you've seen earlier, but I just bring something to your attention. About this idea of rising and living with Christ, being united to Him. Romans 6, let's start at verse verse 2. Don't you know that all of us who are baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live a what? New life, keep going. If we have been united with Him like this in His death, we will certainly be also united with Him in His what? Resurrection. Now let's pause. In the context here, He doesn't mean the physical resurrection on the judgment day. He means the spiritual resurrection that took place in your baptism when you were joined to Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Verse 6, For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so the body of sin might be done away with, so we would no longer be slaves to sin. Anyone who has died has been set Freed from sin. And it goes on from there. Uh, Let's go to Ephesians. Ephesians 2, 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. What? With Christ. I want you to hear reigning with Christ here too. If we're joined to Christ, everything Christ does, we do with Him. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you've been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms. That means right now. Do you get that? 
In other words, it's a spiritual reality. We've been raised up spiritually with Him. And because we're united to Christ, where He sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, we're with Him. But that's a spiritual, mystical reality, isn't it? That will be somehow manifested visibly on the day of the physical resurrection. This is what he says. Let's keep going. In Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming age, he might show us exactly what we have. I reworded it for you. But you see that? Show us what? The incomparable riches of his grace. Because we rule with him in that next world. Okay, one more, and then i got to move on. Uh, let's go to uh, uh, Colossians. Colossians 2.9. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ. Fullness in Christ, who is the head over what? Every power and authority. Now, we've been given fullness in Christ. Christ has authority over everything, everything right? Well, if we're united to Him and have fullness, then by uh, uh, deduction, then we have everything He has and everything He does. We rule with Him. In Him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done for Christ. And He means what? Having been buried with Him in baptism and what? Raised with Him through your faith. Here's that resurrection again, isn't it? Spiritually raised with Him. I could go on and on and on, but uh, let's go back to Revelation 20. Let's go then to uh, 20 verse 7. When the thousand years are over, that means the end of the world, not the end of a physical reign on earth, the end of the world. Because the thousand years, remember, is a symbol for the entire period between His first coming and His last coming. So when it's time for the judgment day, when the world is coming to an end, when Jesus Christ is coming back, okay, when the thousand years are over, ah, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations. Now a couple of things here. Now watch this. This is very important. Does Satan make an escape or is he let go? That's a cue. Did you get that? You get that? He doesn't make a break. God, no, and Satan doesn't really understand this. God says, okay, it's about time for my son to come back. So he lets Satan go. And, and what that means, we have to wait and see. But it's going to be more deception. Because if the whole purpose is to deceive, that means he's going to go out and what? That's what it says here. And he's going to go out and what? Deceive the nation. So he doesn't understand what God's doing because he's on omniscient. He doesn't know anything about God. So he's going to go out, thinks he's going to, ah, here's my time to make my move. Right? But it's all been choreographed by, choreography by God. The four corners are Gog and Magog. Now, this is not literal either. There is no physical battle of Armageddon. There's not going to be a real nation. For, you know, Hal Lindsey said it was going to be Russia and China. Well, you know, forget all that stuff. When you read this carefully, you can look it up in your footnotes. Gog and Magog were real places, and they were referred to in the book of Ezekiel. And just like Babylon, they come to represent all the evil forces, wicked forces that are opposed to the forces of Gog. So these are symbolic things. In other words, Satan is going to muster all the elements in the world, governments and this and the entertainment world and anything he can to either try to bring persecution to Christians or to seduce them. He musters all the evil forces of the world. Okay? That's what he's going to do. So he gathers them for battle, spiritual battle. Okay? Huge numbers. Quick side note. I don't know about you, but sometimes as a Christian, that's why I feel like in our culture, culture as our American culture becomes less and less friendly to Christians, you know, well, fast forward 100 years, what's it going to be like? This is just, so what we're seeing is this little tiny tip of the iceberg. 
Okay, look at night. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people. Now, the camp of God's people is the church. Don't take this literally. I don't want you picturing in your mind an army encircling a city. It's not literal. This is a spiritual reality. How do you, how do you draw pictures of spirits? You can't. So you have to describe these things in terms that we can what? Understand. Don't take any of this literally. The reality is there's going to be a spiritual unleashing of Satan with all the forces of evil against the church. Right? And he thinks he's going to win. Now watch. So here he comes. I mean, let's do it again. This is so much fun. Let's do it again. Verse 9. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people and the city of love. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them all. That's it. It's all over with. You see what I mean? There's no battle. So, But Satan thinks there's going to be a battle, right? He, oh, he thinks, I'm going to make my move and here we go. And Jesus comes and says, okay, April Fool's. There is no battle, is there? Yes, Steve. The 144,000 is a symbol for God's people. Do not take that literally. Jehovah Witnesses take that literally. And there will be 144,000 Jehovah... That's not right. 144,000 is a multiplication of 12 and 12. What is... Okay, let's back up real quick. 12 is going to be a symbol for what? 12 tribes. tribes, How many disciples? 12. So 12 and 12 is going to be a symbol for the entire people of... God, and 10 by 10 by 10 is a complete number, 144,000. So 144,000 symbolizes all the people that are saved. Yes, George. I'd like to suggest the farmer in the field was correct. In Genesis, we learned in the first night of the Course that we were created to worship God. Yes. We fell by the wayside, you know, we sinned. We've been separated from God and we want to know God. The rest of the scripture is telling us that how we do it yeah. and that we will do it. Yeah. And uh, some of this becomes like a smokescreen. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Did I see another hand over there? Okay. Okay, so see, there is no battle. Oh, you, got the, you get this sense of a big buildup and then it's over. And the devil, who deceived them, was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur. Where the beast and the false prophet, don't have time to go into that, just real simple. All that basically stands for all the anti-Christian power that's used against the church and the anti-Christian forces in the church, as well as the seduction of the world that he uses. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say right now. But that will all be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then verse 11, we're almost done. Then I saw the great white throne. This is the judgment day. And him who was seated on it, that's Christ. Earth and sky fled from his presence. Remember how we said last week, this whole universe is going to be what? Destroyed. This world's going to what? Pass away. That's what he means there. It's another reference. This world's passing away. It's the judgment day. No place for them. That is, no place for what? The earth and the sea and all that. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of what? Life. Now we're going to see, if you're in the book of life, that, that's, that's Christ. But notice there's two books. You're either in the book of life, which we're going to see in just a moment, which means there's no sins written in there at all. But if you don't want to be in his book, okay, we'll open your book. And you know what that means, don't you? That ponderous chain of Jacob Marley and Ebenezer Scrooge. If you don't want Christ, then you get to see all the things that are written in your book, all the things you did and you shouldn't have done, etc. But if you're in the book of the Lamb, none of that's in there because it's all what? Forgiven. So, 
If we have faith in Christ, we're in this other book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. In other words, you're in the book of life or your own book. I don't have time to go into all this. We did it last week a little bit. Remember the parable of the sheep and the goats? And people will be judged by what they did. Non-Christians, all their sins will be pointed out. All of them. That indicated they did not trust in Christ. The Christians, not one sin will be mentioned. Not one sin will be mentioned. They're all paid for, forgiven, washed away. So what works is Jesus going to mention? Your good works. Remember we talked about the reward of good works last week? Your good works. And you're going to say, Wow, Lord, that wasn't a big deal. You did it for me. So only your good deeds will be mentioned on the day of the resurrection. And that says the sea and the dead gave it up, uh, gave all up in it. The death in Hades gave up the dead. And remember I told you Hades would pass away because Hades is a place for what? Souls. Now we're going into Gehenna, right? Hades is no longer what? No longer necessary. Because now we're going to go to Gehenna that we talked about last week. Each person was judged according to what he did. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, that's Christ. He was thrown into the lake of fire. Okay, that's all I can do right now, but hopefully it's a little bit. Now, let's... um, Let's open it up. You've got about a, a solid 30 minutes here. You can ask more. I don't want to really do a whole study on Revelation. Please don't do that. I know it's so tempting. I, I, it, but resist the temptation. I don't want to do a book study of Revelation. Okay? But if you want to ask something just about specific, about another Bible passage someplace else. Well, what about this Bible passage? What about that? Or, or we're into the free time now. You can ask anything you want now. Not just about the end of the world or rapture. Anything you want. Something I didn't go over well enough or you, you want to hear again or whatever. So this is our free time that we get. So, yes, please. Um, I know that uh, position, my position is, you know, I mean, we're all saved the same way. Uh-huh. But in Romans 11, it talks about how Gentiles have been let in so it'll make the Jews envious. Yeah. And... But, doesn't the Bible talk about the Jews having a kind of a special no. place or plan? No, not apart from Christ. Not apart from Christ. Okay. Remember, let me show you real simple. I'm gonna, I'll show you a Bible passage real quickly. Okay. Okay. The promise to Abraham. People, land, Savior. You can't take the Savior out from the Jews. All you got left is people and land. Right. Savior. They rejected the Savior. And the only Jews that will be saved are those who believe in Jesus. Real quick, real quick uh, answer to your question. Go to Romans. Romans 9.1. Ready? I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promise. Theirs is the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, praise forever. Right? But he'd rather be cursed for them because they're not saved. Go to chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. What? May be saved. For I can testify about them. Oh, they're zealous for God, all right. But their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they do not know the righteousness that comes from God, that's Jesus, and sought to establish their own on the basis of the Ten Commandments, they did not submit to God's righteousness, which is Jesus. Christ is the end of the law. 
So that no one be righteous for everyone, uh, so, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. I could do more, but that, that sells it right there. No, they don't have a special way to God. My goodness, the same special way. But I mean, uh, the the uh, Gentiles are saved to make the Jews envious. Yeah, yeah, envious. What? So they'll believe in Christ. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think what you're trying to say, and I got to watch my clock because I don't want to go too fast. But I'm sure other people have questions too. They are. What, God, what Paul says in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is that God's election cannot be taken back and his calling. But that election and calling is in the knowledge of what? Christ. So that means that it's not too late for them. That's what he says when he used the grapevine issue. Okay? Don't, is you Gentiles, don't you be arrogant and nasty towards the Jews. The Jews were the original people that got the promise of who? Christ. And then you Gentile people were tagalongs. You get to put into the vine because of Christ. So you can be cut off just as easy as the Jews if you get arrogant towards the Jews. And God in His grace can still bring Jews to faith in Jesus and they can be put back on. And they're natural branches and you and I are unnatural branches. Yeah. So you're right about the election and calling, but never separate the election and calling from Christ, and that's the mistake of the dispensationalist. Mm-hmm. All they focus on are people and land. Well, what about Christ? What are, why are the Jews important apart from Christ? They're the ones who brought the Savior into the world. So you say they're, they're no more special than Gentiles, Jews? No, no. For God so loved the world. Yeah. Thank you. God so loved the world. God doesn't love Jews more than He loves Gentiles. What a horrible thought. Yes. Okay, we'll go over here. Yes. The reason that he, that he, that he you know, says, well, first the Jews are the Gentiles, I mean, he had to have a starting point. Exactly. And since the Messiah came through the Jews, he started with the Jews. And then both Jesus and Paul said, well, since you're not interested, I'll go to the Gentiles. Yeah, but you're right. He had to have a starting point. And the natural starting point were the Jews because the Jews were given the promise of the Savior. The Savior of the whole world is a Jew. Yeah. And you can read John's gospel at the beginning. says, Jesus, I'm going to paraphrase, Jesus came to his own, and they knew him not. They rejected him. Okay, uh, yeah, please. So much as said, you know, about forgiveness of sins, but in looking at the world and various churches and various people in uh, <coughs> notable positions and all kinds of... You mean notable p- people in the church itself? Well, or just in the culture? Both. Okay, both. Okay, okay. The concept nowadays seems to be when caught up in a public sin, not to be repentant, but to yeah. alibi. Yes, and I agree. What what is going to happen to people like that? And can they get right to the point of death and repent? Yes. Yes, they could. Oh, in other words, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I, I can only give you the hypotheticals. Only God knows what's in a person's heart. But hypothetically, yes, a person could stay in a condition of unrepentance and die, and they're damned. Or sooner or later, even shortly before their death, they could be brought to a terror of conscience, repentance, and throw themselves on God's mercy, love, grace, and forgiveness in Jesus, and be saved, just like the thief on the cross. And that's between God and them, you know. And on the day of the resurrection. We'll know. But until then, yeah. But those are the possibilities. Uh, let's see where we go. Please. Please. The first one goes along first. So, you know, like, I think in the Catholic Church, they believe before you die, you need to, like, confess everything to the priest or something. 
what's your take on if you say maybe you confessed your sins earlier that day, but you maybe later that day you were hit by a car and yeah. you didn't yeah. get a chance to? Yeah, no, die. no, that's no, that it, it's how do I say this? Rather than being the answer to your question is not an either or, it's a both and. In other words, uh, somebody can repent of their sins receive God's forgiveness, and die that way without ever having confessed their sins to me or anybody else. They did it to who? God. Well then, what's the point of confessing it to somebody else? It's for the sake of the conscience. To have me sitting there at their bedside, holding their hand, and they're telling me some sin. I said, you know, Jesus took care of that. You're forgiven. Don't you worry about that. It's finished. He died for that. You're forgiven. That's been all washed away in the waters of your baptism. You hear the difference? They wouldn't have to say that to me. He can say it right to God, and he's just as forgiven. But, but this is why God gives us pastors and fellow Christians to be able to hear a human voice say that. To but us. Yep. even if, like, say, say it's been a couple days since you confessed your sins to God. And no, that doesn't matter. That's, right. That's a good question. Let me put it to you why. why. Um, again, it's not an either or, it's a both and. For example, I'll use me as an example, because uh, I'd be an example for any Christian. There's times I'm very much aware of my sins, and I feel burdened by my sins. And those are the times, in one way or other, I come before God and I confess my sins and ask Him to forgive me and help me to believe that His promise that I really am forgiven and may this forgiveness empower me to make these changes I need to make in my life. But in between those times, Ruth, I'm still covered with the grace of God. I haven't done this in this class. Let me do it this way. Because... um, it's not like we fall in and out of favor with God. I'm in favor with God when I'm consciously forgiving, my, uh, confessing my sins, and then I'm out of favor with God when I'm not conscious. No, we live in a state of grace. This is in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. He talks about this grace in which we stand. And the way I kind of communicate, I hope it works a little bit, it's like an umbrella. Okay. My great artwork again. Okay, you have a person under an umbrella, and the idea of the umbrella is to keep the rain off of you, right? Okay. Well, what, what the meaning of faith and baptism is we live under every single, every single second of our life. We live under the grace of God. And so that keeps His wrath and off of us. So, you know, let's say that, uh, let's say I go to church on a Sunday morning, Okay? and receive the Lord's Supper for the forgiveness of my sins and absolution and the benediction, and then I go out that day, and let's say that, um, let's say that um, uh, of course, I would never do this, of course. I'm exceeding the speed limit, and some guy cuts in front of me, and because I don't have my collar on, I feel free to tell him what I think about that. And then, tragically, I'm hit by a car and I die. <laughs> I'm going to heaven. I'm going to have because I live in a condition or a state of grace, okay? Which is different if I was living in a willful, persistent sin. Let me use a different example than the car accident. For five years now, I've been meeting once a month with another woman and having an adulterous relationship with her. Now, I'm still not going to tell you for sure. All I'm going to say is, although I can't judge that exactly, that's more serious than what I just told you about the car thing. Because the car thing was what? Just impulse and kind of came out of my original sin. The five-year adulterous relationship is long-standing, willful, 
persistent. I'm obviously not confessing it to God. You hear the difference? And that's the thing the Bible warns about. And ultimately, only God will be able to tell in the end. So I can't judge that either. I'm just trying to set up the different situations. But we never want to forget we live under God's grace always. You are in a state, a condition of grace. You have been adopted into God's family. That help a little bit? Yeah. Okay, uh, George, and then over here. There's, there's a related case, okay. if you will. If you come from a fundamentalist or evangelical tradition, you're always looking for some revival in your life so that you have this high that yes. some people feel they had when they were first oh. saved. And if you yes. don't have that great, wonderful feeling all the time, then you feel that yes. you know, something's wrong, or maybe you were never saved. Thank you. I brought this out in um, Lesson 9 on justification, and I tried to hit it hard. It's that very point. We never want to measure the certainty of our salvation and how we feel. Because sometimes you may feel pretty good and it's really self-righteousness. At other times we're in total despair. Why can't I get this right? Why do I keep doing this? You know, And you don't feel saved at all. So you never judge your condition simply on how you feel. You judge it on God's promises to you. You know, very important. Because our emotions are what? Up and down. Sometimes you really feel close to God. Other times you feel so far from God. And wouldn't it be horrible that your salvation really depended on your emotional ups and downs? No. You're in a state of grace. That's a good point. Thank you, George. Uh, Clarence. If you're in a crowd and something is said against the Bible or against Christ and I feel like most people don't want to speak up they want to stay silent uh, I've got to the point now that I feel like if you do that you're rejecting Christ and you should speak up and not be silent now is that wrong? That's what, no that's what Jesus says I don't think we can argue that point. We may argue how you do it, you know, what words you use and how you approach it. I'm not going to get into that. But yes, that's, that's what he says. He who denies me before men, I will deny him before my father. Now I realize that could be abused and misunderstood. But that's why we're here. We're supposed to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth and all that. Now, that doesn't mean we don't, that we don't make mistakes, Clarence, because I can tell you many times, of course, I don't know exactly what you're talking about, but when it comes to witnessing, I know there's been many times that I, and I think other Christians can relate to this, say, I had an opportunity. <laughs> Why didn't I say it? I missed it. And there might be another time, Clarence, I said, well, I said it, but I didn't say it very good. <laughs> So, it, having said that, we never do it quite perfectly, but your basic principle is correct. No question about it. How we apply that principle may be inconsistent sometimes, but your basic point is correct. Yep. Yes. But after the flood, yes. You no, know I had three sons. Um. Uh, what, what, yeah, three sons. Yeah, yeah, there were eight of them. One of them became the ancestor to Abraham. Is that true? Uh, yes. There's a cr- chronology. Yes. After that, what happened to the other two sons? Were they in any way related to the world of Islam? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, not, not directly, but indirectly they are, of course, because Abraham had uh, Ishmael. Remember Ishmael yeah, with, with Hagar? And uh, Ishmael is basically uh, where the uh, Arabian people uh, trace their roots. That's why they, they call Abraham their father, and they're right. 
And that's what's so ironic about the Mideast. You really have relatives fighting because uh, the Jews are descendants of, uh, of Isaac and Jacob, right? I mean, uh, yeah, of, uh, of, uh, yeah, of Abraham and uh, the Muslims, the, Ab- the Arabians are descendants of Abraham too. Yeah, one through Isaac and the other through uh, Ishmael. Yes, uh, does the Lutheran Church believe in penance? Well, you have to explain what you mean by penance before I can well, answer. Well, you don't say we have to say Hail Marys 20 times or something. We don't say Hail Marys at all. No, at all. Yeah, when, when you sin, or why sin, and what do you do? Just say, I'm sorry, I sinned, God? That's right. And That's right. It's just like if, if you offended me, I mean, what you should do is say, gee, I'm so sorry, I forgive you. Or if I offend you, say, I'm sorry, Doug, I didn't mean to do that. You say, well, I forgive you. That's the way it is with God. See, see, this is why this is why I talk about sins that you are conscious of. Those need to be repented. Because if if you have a conscious sin and you don't repent, you don't repent of it. You, and, and I'm not saying you're lost or you lose your faith, but if if you don't repent of conscious sins, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then so, but then you need to repent of all sins because we still have our sinful nature, don't we? Like, like when I say my prayers at night, I may say something specific to God: "Forgive me for." Very specific. And then, but before I go to sleep, I say, and forgive me all my sins of this day. Because remember when we talked about our sins, we don't remember or know all of our sins. No. And so I just, I just say that. I say, and God, whatever other sin I've committed against you this day, I trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of those sins too. Does, does the Lutheran Church have... Anything like confession in the Catholic Church where you go to... Yes, I don't... You maybe you missed the... You might have missed the lesson. We talked about that. Yes, we do. There's differences in that uh, Catholic is mandatory, Lutheran is optional. In the Catholic Church, you're supposed to enumerate all your sins or historically. In in, uh, the Lutheran Church, you just confess the sin that's bothering you. Uh In the Catholic Church, historically, you had to do something, satisfaction, to get the forgiveness. In the Lutheran Church, we just give you the forgiveness. So uh, there, there are differences. But yes, we practice private confession and absolution. Uh, with the pastor or with other believers? Or? You could do it with other believers. Most people do it with their pastor, but you could do it with other believers. Okay. Yep. Yep. Clarence. Uh, this is humor, but I remember all of my sins because my wife is <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I'm not going there, Clarence. <laughs> But you know, the, something that's very common about knowing your sins, it's, it's David in Psalm 51. David wrote Psalm 51 after he repented of committing adultery with Bathsheba and having Bathsheba's husband killed on the front lines of the army. He repented of that sins. And one of the things he says, he says in Psalm 32, is another good psalm, my sins are always before me. That's a guilty conscience speaking, Clarence. King David says, my sins are always before me. That's a guilty conscience. And he comes to seek God's forgiveness. Yeah. Please. I have a question about um, the new heaven and the new earth. Yes. Um, you know, like, so we believe that that's what, what happens after the rapture or Christ comes back. Yeah. But in Isaiah 65, it's talking about, it says, I will create a new heaven, new heavens and the new earth. And... It says in 20, never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few yeah. days or an old man who does not live out of years. Right. How, 
It sounds like they're years. Yeah, no, that's a figure of speech. See, this is where the art of biblical interpretation is very important. In other words, he's using a figure. How do you understand a world that you've not experienced yet? How do you understand a world where you have a glorified, imperishable body with no sin, death, and all these wonderful things like Christ? And so he communicates in a way that things you could understand. So it's not to be understood literally about the infant or literally about the age of the man. It just It's just saying, wow. Think about that. You know, this kind of world is going to be awesome. So it's not to be understood uh, in a literal fashion. Uh, so, And that's, that's often the challenge of the Bible. Is it? It's not the only challenge. But one of the challenges of understanding the Bible property, properly is knowing when to take something literally and when to take something figuratively. And there's two ways a person can get that. One is in a class by somebody who's well-versed in the Bible. Or... Or, I believe in the power of God's Word. If you really study the Bible diligently, not superficially, over a period of time, you get this yourself. You don't have to be brilliant, but you do have to study. So I'm saying you can come to those same conclusions simply by really careful study of the Bible. You come to these things because you start to know the whole Bible in its entirety, and then you know how you know that how a certain author writes, or you know a passage here, and you know there's another passage over here that really explains and embellishes this. See what I'm getting at here? So that's how that's how I know these things, and uh, not to take that, for example, literally, but figuratively. Just you know, when the, when the Bible talks about the the lion and the lamb laying down, well. That, that might be literal. You know, we'll have to see because in that new world, I don't know what all is going to be there. That's a, another a difficult one. Because in the new world, there won't be any killing, will there? As a matter of fact, in the Garden of Eden, there was no killing. You know that? Because death came into the world because of sin. So there weren't any lions, despite what evolutionists might say. There was no lions killing sheep. That's the result of the fall and the sin. So really, the new world will be a reversal back. And it'll be different but similar to the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Will there be children in heaven? No. No children, because of a couple of things. First of all, we know from the Gospels, Jesus says that we'll be like the angels in heaven, which doesn't mean we have harps and wings. <laughs> but in the context, what he means is, is that we'll be like the angels, and explains what he means right in the text, in that we will not marry, and there'll be no giving in marriage. So my wife will not be my wife in the world to come, and there won't be any new wives or families. There won't be any new children. Okay, And everybody, this is my belief, an infant dies at three months. That infant, that baptized Christian, will be have a full-blown adult body. Because would God know what that infant was going to look like as a full-grown person? Well, of course. Of course. God doesn't have to wait for the child. Gee, I wonder what this child's going to look like. So that's the same thing. So a child, or like old, you know... I hope I don't have this body, you know. <laughs> See what I mean? And same with an infant. So this is where, getting back to Ruth's question, this is where it's tough. How do you understand these profound concepts of a new world? And sometimes the Bible uses these images. And, um, and, and that's why I like two Bible passages real quickly I'll give you on this because the Bible can't tell us. For example, in 1 John, John tells us, we do not know yet what we will be. Well, that makes me feel good. If John didn't know, I can't tell you either. All he says, but we know this, we'll be like him. And then remember in Romans chapter 8, uh, Paul says, I consider the present sufferings in this world, something you can understand. Can't even compare with what? The glory that's going to be revealed. So he can't tell you what that glory is going to be exactly, but it's going to be, see all the suffering? Huh. 
That'll be nothing compared to what you're going to experience. So that's our dilemma. We know just enough without all the little tiny details. Yeah, I have to say that that one thing really has thrown me for years. Uh, now, which one now? We were given the physical mechanism to reproduce. Yes, yeah, exactly. And so... But that's for this life. Right. Yeah, that's for this life. For Adam and Eve and children. Yeah, but that's what I said with Ruth. See, this we have to be real careful. Yeah. Remember what I said to Ruth just a minute ago. It's going to be sort of like the Garden of what? Eden. Eden, but not exact. Not exact. Because Adam and Eve didn't, to the best of my knowledge, Adam and Eve didn't have bodies like Jesus Christ, which we're going to have a body like Jesus Christ. Yeah. And see, Adam and Eve were also capable of what? Even They were capable of what? Sinning. That's not going to happen again. There's not going to be another fall. Not going to be another fall. So this is where we have to be real careful. It's going to be very similar to Eden, which we can say a lot of similar, but we can't say it's going to be exact because he's creating a new heaven and a new earth, a new world. Yeah. Uh, but... If the world that we're going to inherit has no dimension of time, would that imply that we could see what's going on in front of us as well you know, as we might be able to see <laughs> No, we laugh, but I, I think you're onto something. For example, I'm going to say something, and, I, and it's sort of like what you're saying, but I don't know if this is going to be 100% true or not, so please don't take it 100% true. Yeah. On the day of the resurrection, I can see you say, well, that's what Pastor Lastman said. <laughs> I don't get this either. We'll have to wait. But yes, I think you're right. I think it's going to be something like this. If Something like this. We're going to be in this new, new universe, new, new world. Okay? I don't quite understand. With this new body capable of all kinds of stuff. you know. And uh, we might say, bud, look at the vast universe of this new world. Yeah, You know... We have all eternity to explore this. Why don't we go here and explore this? I don't know how it's all going to work out, but that's the kind of capability. We're going to have full use of our brain, far more than full use of our brain. I mean, I can't understand all this stuff. I want to be an explorer. I want to go back to yeah. where we were. Yeah, well, but you see, these, things, these kind of things may be possible. It's, it's just too hard to understand. And that's why, A, the Bible has to use figures of speeches and symbols, and B, finally say, you really can't understand this anyway. You've got to wait. So, you Bible tells us that which we talk about eyes have not seen... Oh, yes. That's in First Corinthians. Yeah, about verse chapter 2 or 3, I think. Yeah, Eyes have not seen what God has prepared for them. That's another good one. Yeah, I don't know if I use this example. I'll do it real quick because we're getting a little short here on time. Uh, I don't know if I use this example or not, uh, but sometimes it can be compared to only using words to describe to a five-year-old what Disneyland's like. No pictures. You pretend they've never, no books, no pictures, just words. Well, they're going to get real excited, aren't they? You're going to get excited to describe all this? But that five-year-old really won't know, right? To go into that parking lot, shut the door, walk under those archways, it's the happiest place on the earth, and you see their eyeballs go, whoa, Right? Only then will they experientially fully understand what you are trying to communicate with words. That's the way the day of the resurrection is going to be. Our eyes are going to go, you know, we knew it was going to be good, but wow. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross. 
for all of your sins. Amen.